From the Museum of Science in Boston, this is Pulsar, a podcast where experts answer questions from you, our audience. I'm your host, Eric O'Day. Thanks to Facebook Boston for supporting this episode of Pulsar. We have fielded a lot of questions from people interested to know how tornadoes work and what research is being conducted by scientists who study tornadoes. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Smith, a meteorologist with the National Severe Storms Laboratory in Norman, Oklahoma. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for coming on Pulsar. Thanks for having me. So our first question we got from multiple people, and it is, how do tornadoes form? The short answer is actually we still don't exactly understand this. We do know that most highly destructive tornadoes occur with supercell thunderstorms or thunderstorms which have a deep rotating updraft, which we call the mesocyclone. So when you think about a supercell, a lot of times what we think of is the isolated picturesque, rotating, stack of pancakes-looking thunderstorm that you might see in a movie or on social media. But supercells can actually also be embedded in more clustered or linear storm systems. So in addition to having tornadoes within them, supercell thunderstorms can also bring other hazards, so damaging hail, severe non-tornadic winds, frequent lightning, and also flash floods. So tornadoes aren't the only thing to worry about. But Nearly all large violent tornadoes are associated with supercells. About one in five or so supercells do produce a tornado, but tornado formation is believed to be dictated mainly by things which happen on the storm scale in and around that mesocyclone or that rotating updraft within a supercell thunderstorm. Over the last decade, observation studies and studies using computerized models have been focused on understanding more about which storm scale features might help us understand why some of these supercells produce tornadoes while other ones do not. Can you talk a little bit about why certain regions have a lot more tornadoes than others? I mean, here in Boston, we don't hear about them that often, maybe once or twice a summer in the whole state. And out where you are in Oklahoma, where the NSSL is based, you get them a whole lot. A lot of the background ingredients that you need to have these really strong and robust thunderstorms that have these large, deep rotating updrafts are just more common in this part of the country where we are open to the Gulf of Mexico. So we get moisture transported from the Gulf of Mexico, but we also have contrasting air masses from other parts of the country. It's also largely flat and open, so there's not a lot of features to kind of slow down flow or change the way that flow might move. And so it's just a bit easier for all of those ingredients to be in place out west out here. However, tornadoes have been measured in almost every state and they are able to happen at all times of the year. So it's definitely not a reason to think that tornadoes won't happen. You know, I mentioned supercell tornadoes and I mentioned that they can oftentimes be embedded in these less organized systems. And so in places like Boston or elsewhere on the East Coast, we oftentimes see tornadoes associated with these more linear systems. So with their destructive power, it's really important to predict when a tornado might happen. So how do you go about thinking about that? We predict tornadoes in a few different ways. One of those ways is by looking into the computerized models. Here in the United States, we operate several operational forecast models on several scales. So there's forecast models that predict the large-scale weather patterns down to the smallest, you know, three-kilometer scale prediction. But it takes experts to interpret what those information tell us. And that's where folks like the National Weather Service and NOAA's Storm Prediction Center, which is actually also located here in Norman, Oklahoma, come in. And so these are the experts that are able to interpret those information and use the training that they have to interpret data that we collect in real time. 
what will happen is the day of a severe risk that the Storm Prediction Center will actually issue a watch if that is necessary. And so that's, you know, six hours out or more. And then the local weather service office, which everywhere in the United States has a weather service office that's responsible for them. So the local weather service office takes over from that scale forward. So we're talking now a couple hours out up to the time of the storms forming, at which point they'll put out a tornado warning. And so in that case, once we get into the few hours out to the time of storms, it becomes a lot more of a problem where you're looking at real-time observations provided by, for example, our National Weather Service radar network. Now, when we asked what questions people had for a tornado researcher, most of them were simply, what research do you do? So can you give us an overview of the science you work on? Some of the unknowns that we still have surrounding tornado science are on the scale of the storm that produces a tornado and smaller. So historically, over the past several decades, field scientists have gone out into the field and collected observations around tornadoes and the storms that produce them, but they've mostly done this using either the fixed radar network or mobile truck-based radars, and then surface meteorological stations either on the Earth's surface itself or maybe connected to vehicles that they're driving, and of course, weather balloons too. But this approach has left a pretty large data gap everywhere from above where the surface station can measure up to the lowest level that the radar can measure, which is usually a few thousand feet. So it's a really big gap, right? And the only measurements that we typically have in that gap are from that occasional weather balloon, which does fly through the gap, but it flies through pretty quickly and then it's off on its merry way. That gap region is also where it's possible that a lot of the interesting mechanisms that might be influencing storms and tornadoes are taking place. And so this is where people like me come in. So I am what's called a boundary layer meteorologist. So that means that I specialize in observing and understanding the portion of the atmosphere that's a few thousand feet and below and how it interacts with the surface. So in the context of storms, what I want to understand is how boundary layer processes can impact storms and tornado potential. So I go out with my team and we operate state-of-the-art equipment, which allows us to observe how atmospheric features like temperature, wind, humidity, how those are changing with height above the surface. And we're able to take those observations as rapidly as every minute. So we're really able to understand how that region that's frequently not very well observed is changing and evolving and what that means for storm evolution and tornado potentials. So how close do you have to get to a tornado to study it like this? Are you really up close or are you kind of just in the neighborhood? So it's a little bit of both. A typical day will include both of those things because it's actually pretty hard since there are so many unknowns to be in the exact right place at the right time. Even though YouTube might make it look like it's easy, it's not. And so, you know, we'll collect a lot of data while the storm is still either forming or maybe still further away. But what we like to do in a perfect world is we like to deploy in a location where we're able to start collecting data while the storm is still several kilometers away, 30 to 60 kilometers away. And the reason we want the storm to be that far away is because we want to understand the environment that's still undisturbed before the storm gets there. So we start to collect information then, and then as the storm moves toward us, the storm begins to influence that environment. And we are collecting data as those changes happen, and then we wait until the last possible safe moment um, for us to undeploy and get away safely. We do have really good safety plans in place, but sometimes that means that we're quite close within a kilometer. We are experts at what we do and we have a good team that keeps us safe, but it makes for some interesting work days. 
any resources that you can recommend if our listeners want to learn more about tornadoes? On the National Severe Storms Laboratory webpage, which you can find at nssl.noaa.gov, there's an entire section on Severe Weather 101, where you can learn about thunderstorms, tornadoes, flooding, lightning, and more. And then more broadly at just noaa.gov, there's information about all kinds of earth science phenomena ranging from ocean science to severe weather science and everything in between. And our last question is from Jess, who asks, what is your favorite part of being a tornado researcher? My favorite part of my job is field work. When you go to school for meteorology, you are doing a lot of math and science. And once you get into research, a lot of work behind the computer screen, a lot of data manipulation, a lot of coding. And sometimes it's easy to kind of get lost in that and forget about the really amazing power that's in the atmosphere and the fact that it changes every day. And so having the opportunity as part of my professional career to go out into the field and see this amazing display of nature's power and be able to collect those data and hopefully impact lives in a positive way by making forecasts better and keeping people and their property more safe. It's actually really, really cool and a really rewarding way to do science. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for coming on Pulsar and telling us all about tornado research. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to have one of your questions answered by a visiting expert or a Museum of Science educator, you can email them to sciencequestions at mos.org. If you enjoyed this episode of Pulsar, don't forget to subscribe on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify, as well as leaving a rating or review for us. That's it for this episode of Pulsar. Join us again soon. Pulsar.